time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, and a time for war and a time for peace. This morning I'm going to walk into chapter 3. We're going to sort of lay the foundation this morning. We'll come back and, and look at it in greater detail. As we read through these verses, verses 1 through 8, it seems rather simple and straightforward, but what I have found throughout this entire chapter is that there are some very intriguing and difficult thoughts. So this morning I'm going to end with a question, and I'm going to leave you hanging on that question, and we'll come back next week and answer the question. But I want to begin with this thought by C.S. Lewis. He says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. This is what we're going to get into, especially when we come to verse 11 of chapter 3. God has made everything fit beautifully in its appointed time, but He has also placed eternity in the hearts of man. And we'll plunge into these thoughts, but this is such a beautiful word that we get from Solomon in Ecclesiastes, and he is going to change his perspective on things, and he's going to refocus us. And if I could capture the thought that's laid out here in verse 11 by Estes, he makes this statement, Humans are bound by time, but they are wired for eternity. They intuitively know that there must be meaning somewhere and that they were made for more than just vain toil. And Solomon is going to realize this, that we have a capacity for something larger, something greater than merely succession of times, especially when they seem so uncontrollable. And we will find in this passage as we walk through this chapter together is that there are things in our life that we seek to try to control and think that somehow we can control them, but in reality we do not. And the quicker that we can come to the realization that we don't control life and the things in life, the better off that we will be, at least to recognize the providence of God in the events of our everyday life. And Solomon is going to take us on this journey, but if I could lay out the, the, the overall thought, it is this, for everything there is an appointed time. And that is the overriding idea that runs through here, verses 9 through 11, he's going to deal with the issue of our ignorance of God's timing. We cannot see the full scope or understand the full scope of everything that God is doing. But in verses 12 through 13, he's going to exhort us to enjoy life in the present. And he is going to bring us back to the sovereignty of God in verses 14 and following, especially as he's going to deal with the injustices and the oppression that we find in the world around us. How do we face that? We find that when we go to the New Testament, oftentimes we are exhorted that we are to focus upon heaven. We are to live with our eyes on the sweet by and by. But we also find that we have these blessings in Christ that He has prepared for us that, that sit awaiting for us in the future, and we are to live life looking forward to them. But also we find that our faith prepares us for what can be called the nasty now and now. And Solomon is dealing with these issues, especially in the first two chapters, but in chapter 3 he is going to bring God into the picture. And he's going to help us to understand that life provides opportunities for us to live out our faith as we serve God. And our life experience as we walk through life and we experience these things as we go through, we see that God has designed all of this. That our God is a God of order, not disorder. 
And that there is an order to our life, and this is the overall thought that he is going to establish in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, is that God is in control of time, all of time. We also know that every area of life contains the imprint of divine care and provision, and therefore the Creator is the controller. And this is the reminder that comes over and over again in the Old Testament. If God created everything, God controls everything. Why? Because it's His. And Solomon is going to wrestle with these thoughts and he's going to bring God into the picture and that's always a good thing for us because it helps clarify our perspective. We always have the best perspective, if you will. And so he is going to glance above and beyond the sun into the heavens. And he's going to introduce a phrase to us. Although he has been talking about life under the sun, from man's perspective, he's going to bring us to this new perspective under the heavens. We saw the first mention of it in chapter 1, verse 13. And this is the first time that we have the mention of God. And this is the first time that he speaks about under heaven. He is going to return to that thought in chapter 3, verse 1, as he talks about the fact that there is an appointed time for everything and there is a time for every event under heaven. And then chapter 5, he's going to come back to this thought again. And he's going to talk about the fact that God is the one who dwells in heaven. And so this is going to become the new focus, especially in this chapter. So in 3.1 then he is going to have us look at God's appointed times because time is under heaven's control and not man's control. I find it interesting that increasingly we see man think that he controls two things. That he thinks he controls the weather and that he thinks he controls time of which he controls neither one. All of this climate change and everything else, we don't control that. God controls that. And if it's going to be destroyed, God Himself is going to destroy it. We will not. We don't have the power to do so. And so Solomon is going to help us to understand this, that God is the one who is under control. And yes, as he talks about the events in, in verses 1-8, through 8, we are involved in these things, but ultimately his focus is on the fact that God controls these things. He controls all the seasons. He has appointed the times and the things that are to occur. But we do partake in this. And next week we'll talk about this as we walk through this. But this is similar to the thoughts that came from his father David in Psalm 35 when David says, My times are in your hand. We live by the clock. We sort of at times die by the clock. We are driven by the calendar. We set dates. We set appointments. We're driven by these things. And everything in our life is driven by time. This is what's interesting for me as I teach Greek and Hebrew is getting people to understand that you need to give up the idea of time. For the Greek and the Hebrew, when it comes to their verbal system, time was not the issue. It was the kind of action. That's what mattered to them. The time was a secondary thought. When we lived in Russia, it was much the same way. They, they weren't concerned with time. They didn't live by the clock. And, and they would have tea time in the middle of the day, chai peat, and we would sit around and talk. And if it was a great conversation, it would go a little bit longer. And no one was in a hurry to get back to work, although we eventually had to get back to work. And you would see your neighbors at night and you would walk out and see in all the apartment buildings, the lights would be on way into the morning. Why? Because they're socializing. They're sitting together as family and they're talking. If there's something good that's happening, they're not quick to go to bed, even though they have to get up for work the next day. But here in the West, we're driven by the clock. We're driven by the calendar. We think that we control our time, right? And then all of a sudden, something happens that we didn't plan for, we didn't expect was going to occur. All of a sudden, it happens, and we are brought to the reminder of the fact that God is the one who is in control. 
So this is where Solomon is going to take us. He takes us from the experiential investigation that we saw in chapters 1 and 2 and the lesson that he learned there that is man is powerless. And he brings us out in the refrain in verses 24 and 26. In the end of chapter 2, there is no intrinsic good in man and God alone is the giver of good. We saw the introduction and the theme, the catalogs of vanities, but now he's going to take us into a poem of time in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, and then the poem's message, verses 9 through 22 of chapter 3. That is the two-part outline. Essentially, that's what we're going to look at. But we're going to unpack this over the next couple of Sundays. But he begins, first of all, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, a poem on time. And as customary, we've seen this before, we will see it again, that Solomon begins with this opening statement. He did this in the beginning of Ecclesiastes. He set the stage for the theme and what he was going to deal with. And so he does the same for us here, and he gives us the opening statement in verse 1. And then he proceeds in verses 2 through 8 to illustrate and prove the point as being true. So the summary statement then comes in verse 1. And I'm going to do this. I, you know, I have to show you some things. This is an amazing piece of literature. I can't show you everything. If I could sit down and just do the Hebrew with you, one service, that would be really cool, but I'd probably put half of you to sleep, right? Because if I talk about anachrusis and enjambment, all these things, you'd be like, yeah, whatever. I don't know what that means. But this is really cool stuff. But I'm just going to give you some of it, right? And, and I'll plant some seeds, and then you go ponder these things later on. But he begins with this chiastic structure. And it is a beautiful hymn that he sets here. And this is how it's framed, if you read it in the original. For everything is responded to by for every event. In the middle of this is there is an appointed time and then an appropriate time. And I will discuss these two elements of time because there are two different types of time that he talks about here. He uses two different words. But this is the opening structure. We'll get into the rest of this as we go, and I'll unpack the, the hymn for you. I'm not going to get into the details as born and die and plant and unplant and all that kind of stuff. It's pretty straightforward. You can figure that out. But I want to look at the structure and the truths that he lays out for us. But this is the opening statement, verse 1. For everything there is an appointed time, an appropriate time for every activity under heaven. Now, this is packed. There's, there's a lot that he lays out here. The only thing that I want to look at this morning is the two words that he uses for time here and that's where we'll focus our attention we'll come back later and talk about the the statement of activity under heaven and the term that he uses there but essentially this is the word in which this whole thing pivots on right I mean when you come to a passage of scripture at least for me as I'm preparing for the next week I sit and look at the passage and I have to sit and ponder and ask myself what is the point I didn't have to scratch my tin too long before I figured out what the point was here right a time, a time, a time, a time, a time, a time. It's pretty straightforward. But the truth that it conveys is pretty profound. So Solomon starts us off pretty easily, and he lays on two words for us. And I want to unpack both of these terms for time as we look at this passage together. The first one that we find is used in Scripture and it refers to, and it has the idea of appointed time, a definite time, a designated time. 
This is important because we're talking about the issue of purpose, the intent, the plan. And, and especially when it comes to the issue of God, it is related to these kinds of words. And I give you some examples. So this term that he talks about, this appointed time, it has the idea of purpose and it has the idea of plan. And it is related to other words that we find in the Hebrew scriptures that is related to this term. For example, Job 42.2 we have this statement that is made in regards to God's purpose. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose, and here's our related term, of yours can be thwarted. Whatever God has designed, whatever God has planned, no one can undo that, no one can thwart it, no one can stop it. In other words, God's design is inscrutable. <laughs> it can't be altered. Whatever you try to do, you cannot stay the hand of God. Every time I think of this, I think about the story of Joseph and his life. Joseph comes and he tells them the dream that God had given him, right? Tells his brothers what they're going to do. Then he tells his parents what they're going to do. And they're all like, no, we're not going to bow down and worship you. What are you, crazy? But Joseph tells them the dream. This is what God told me was going to happen. So everything that his brothers did was to oppose that coming true. Whether it was, right, they wanted to kill him, they decided to sell him off into slavery, thinking, okay, if he thinks he's going to rule over us, what can we do? We'll sell him as a slave. There's no way he's going to become a ruler this way. What happens? He becomes a ruler, right? And they wind up before him, seeking food and provision. So whatever it is that God has designed to happen, you cannot thwart it. You can do everything to try and oppose it, and Satan does. He cannot stop the plan of God. The second word, eighth, it's used 296 times in the Old Testament. 29 times in this poem alone, 11 more times in Ecclesiastes. And it has the idea of a proper or suitable time for an event. I give you two lexicons up here so you can understand that I'm not giving you this definition of my own accord. Others agree with me on this, but this is what he is talking about. It is a proper or a suitable time for an event. Some examples. In Ezra chapter 10, verse 13, there is the time for rain. There is an appropriate raining season. There is a particular season in which we know that rain is going to come. It seems like it's all the time around here, but there is an appropriate season for rain. There's an appropriate season for sunshine. There's also a time for judgment for the nations, Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 3. Now what's interesting is if you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 17, he's going to use the same term here. Solomon writes, And I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man, for a time for every matter, for every deed is there. There is a time for judgment. And Solomon is going to dwell on this in the end of chapter 3. There is an appropriate time for everything. There is the rain season, Deuteronomy 11.14, Jeremiah 5.24. There is the time for harvest, Hosea 2.11, Psalm 1.3. There is a season in which food is provided, we see this in Psalm 104. There is a time when mountain goats are born and there is a proper time or a right moment, Ecclesiastes 8.5. This is the second term that Solomon uses here. There is an appropriate time for every activity under heaven. Now ponder that. These are amazing truths that Solomon is dwelling upon here, but what we understand is that time operates under God's creative fiat. 
In other words, when we look at the world, there is orderliness. There is purposefulness. When we look at time, it's all controlled by God. And everything, every season that takes place is according to His design. He has sovereign control over all of these things. Now, I have to tell you that there are some commentators who argue the fact that this particular poem at the beginning of chapter 3 has nothing to do with reflecting divine control. I find that interesting, but it's true. They argue merely that the activities that are listed here in verses 1 through 8 are essentially just those things that are under human control. And we acknowledge the fact that man is involved in this, but let me just point out the context for you. Eight times Solomon is going to mention God here. Only once do we come across the name of God in the first two chapters, and that's in chapter 1, verse 13. And this is when he talks about the fact that God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with this particular task. And this is the first time he mentions under heaven. Now when we come into chapter 3, we're going to have God mentioned eight times. It's all packed within this section. God is the one who is in focus here. And not only that, but when we read verse 11, He states this, God has made everything fit beautifully in its appropriate time. God has done this. So the focus is ultimately on God in this passage, although we have a part in the events that are listed here. And we will talk about that. Because he's going to get to the issue of what about the righteous deeds and what about the wicked deeds and what is God going to do with that? And what about the injustices and the oppression in the world? Is that a part of God's design? Does he really have control over everything when we see these things happening in the world? Solomon would suggest from chapter 3 that yes, God is still in control. So in reality, what Solomon is helping us to understand with the first eight verses in this poem of chapter 3 is that there is nothing that happens haphazardly. Nothing just happens in life. When we look at the events in our life, we need to understand these things don't just happen. There's a reason and a purpose that drives this world that is around us. My wife and I have always sort of had this motto that whoever God brought into our life, then He intended for us to minister to them. And so whenever someone was brought into our life, then we would stop and ask ourselves, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do to minister to this individual? How can we meet a need? What is it that you would have us do? Always attentive to the circumstances of our life. Things don't just happen. So this is going on for a reason. What is it that God wants me to glean from this? What is it that He wants me to do in the midst of this? How does He want me to respond? Because we have responsibility. If God controls the seasons and the times and there's a point of time for everything and God is orchestrating everything, then the things that we walk into in every given day is under His design. So then we must ask ourselves, and what does He want us to glean from this that He is having us walk through? There is then no chance or no mere fate that governs the things that happen in the lives of God's people. There is a suitable occasion for everything, Solomon says, for everything that happens. This is not fatalism. This is not arbitrariness. This is a reassuring truth, the fact that God is in control, but it's also a sobering truth because he's going to dwell on the fact that we still do not understand everything about God's sovereignty. There are mysteries about it. We know that there's a design for the things that happen in our life. We know that as we walk in obedience to the Word of God, there's a reason why God has be, uh, us do these things in our life and to minister this way to other people or to respond this way to a situation. But even in those moments, we don't understand fully how God is going to work in those moments. 
when we encounter people in our life and we have conversations, we don't know what God's going to do with that. You could wind up having a conversation with someone for 30 minutes, not see him for six years, and then all of a sudden you bump into him at church one Sunday and you're going, what are you doing here? You have no idea what God did through all that period of time that He was working in their life and the things that He was doing and all that was a part of His design. We are completely ignorant of all of those things. We have no idea what He's doing, but we know He's in control. And that's always the reassuring thing. But we also have to remember that there are mysteries to God. We don't know everything that He's doing. And even though He has laid out things in Revelation for us of what we can anticipate in the future, there are still things that we do not know about that God is going to do. The text is going to challenge those who do not have a relationship with God, who desire to be God themselves, because we see this in unregenerate man. Unregenerate man wants to control everything, and he wants to do this because he wants to obtain for himself a sense of peace and security. If I can control everything, if I can control time, if I can control my life, then obviously everything's going to be fine. But you're constantly going to be brought up against the reality of the fact that you don't control and this is the one deception that we bring into our lives is that somehow we think we control what happens in this world. We don't. Do our actions have consequences? Yes. Do they have true results? Yes. But all of those are a part of God's design. So Solomon is going to take us from the summary statement into this illustration in verses 2 through 8. He's going to lay out for us the support for this statement. And it's interesting because there's one particular commentary series. They titled this section, I find this fascinating, Hopelessness of Struggle Against an Arbitrary God. I don't see that here at all. So I'm just going to tell you that, and this is how I'm going to walk through this. And it, just as we understand this passage, the sovereignty of God is abundant through here and His control of everything. But when we ended chapter 2, we ended on a high note. Right? The blessings that we have in life that come from God, we receive these as gifts from Him. Solomon says in the end verses, I realize that these pleasures are from the hand of God, for who can eat or enjoy anything apart from Him? So there is this positive note in which we move from chapter 2 into chapter 3. And I suggest to you that Solomon is carrying on this positive element of God's working in our lives. When we look at this poem, we cannot miss looking at it and seeing the rhythm that is here. There's repetition, there's sense, there's completeness, there is order. There's not only a chiastic structure in verse 1, but it's woven all the way through the structure of this poem. And I'm going to highlight these verses for you. This is intriguing what Solomon does. He is going to use 14 opposites. Now think about this, 14 opposites. And they are polar opposites. And the first one sets us off, right? There is a time for birth, there is a time for death. All of this is significant for us because it comes in groups of seven. Right? If my math is right, seven plus seven is 14, right? So there are groups of seven. Well, seven in Scripture is usually the number for completeness, has the idea of totality. Not only that, but we have these extremes that, are uses here, that he uses here, these polarities, these polar statements, which reflects a device that is used in Hebrew poetry called merismus. 
In other words, there is an extreme that is used and that way it braces everything in between. So when he begins, there's a time to be born and a time to die. That encompasses the entirety of life and everything that happens between this point and that point. And this is what he does all the way through this poem. And so there is this idea of completeness or totality. In other words, there is a wholeness here when we look at these pairs, which tells us something about God, that we need to look at God and understand Him, that He is not one-dimensional. Sometimes this is how we view God. He's only love. Right? We place God in this limiting dimension and we see Him as only one-dimensional or we see God in the sense of that there are halves. But when we look at this poem by Solomon, we understand that this is whole. There is a totality here. God is a God of order. God is a God of design. So while your life might look like in chaos, there is a design behind it all. It's like those beautiful rugs, right? And on one side you have this beautiful picture, this ornate thing that's done. But if you flip it over and look on the back side, you see all of these knots and strings and they seem to be going in every direction whatsoever. And it's just a mess. But when you flip it over, there's a beautiful design. This is life. <laughs> this is our life. And the one who's in control of that design is God Himself. So walk through these with me, and I'm just going to lay them out for you. Verse 2 begins this way. Now notice, he's going to go from positive to negative. Giving birth, dying, planting, uprooting. And this is important as he does this. Okay, Verses 3 through 4. We'll come back to verse 2 in a second. Verses 3 through 4, this is what he does. Now he begins with the negative, and he's going to move to the positive. Killing, then healing. Tearing down, building up, weeping, laughing. He embraces every emotion thinkable in a human life by this statement, weeping and laughing. These are the two extremes, and it embraces everything in between. In other words, nothing is left out, correct? There is not one thing that we will experience in life that is left out of God's design. It's all a part of what God does. And then there is appropriateness then in our emotions. We are to do what, Romans? We are to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. There are even appropriate moments in which we are supposed to manifest certain emotions in our life. Right? God sets the scene. We know this is happening. We know that this is a part of His design. This is how we're supposed to respond because this is what the Word of God says. Am I making a willing decision in those moments? Absolutely. Am I culpable if I withhold something from someone that I'm supposed to give to them? Absolutely. Does God hold me responsible for not doing the appropriate thing at the appropriate time? Absolutely. <laughs> and yet, He's still in control. Is that not awesome? This is Philippians. We have this element constantly side by side in the book of Philippians, right? We have the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And they're put right there beautifully next to each other. And we see them run parallel. We look for them to connect, but they never touch. But they're both true. Solomon ends this section, verses 3 through 4, with mourning. Moves to the positive, dancing. Verses 5 through 6. Now here's a change in the pattern, and this is really cool. In verse 5, he's going to start with a negative, move to a positive, and then everything else is going to be the positive to the negative. He starts off with throwing stones, moves to the positive, gathering stones. Embracing, 
refraining from embracing. Positive searching, negative giving up searching. The end, positive keeping, throwing away. Now here's what's cool. Notice how verse 5 begins, throwing stones. Verse 6 ends with throwing away. There's your connection. We have the gathering stones and the keeping. In other words, verses 5 and 6, the way that they're structured, as they open and close, they provide another chiastic structure. This is awesome stuff. This is only a little bit of what Solomon has here. So this is the Spirit who was present at creation. This is the Spirit who was present in all those who built the tabernacle, right? They were specially gifted so that they could do the artwork, right? The glorious artwork and everything that they did to, de to develop the tabernacle and the, and the way that God wanted to design and all the beauty of it and everything. The Holy Spirit guided them in that. The Spirit is guiding Solomon as he writes this. So now we move to verse 7. It goes back to the negative now. Tearing apart, sewing together. Being silent, speaking. I'm a little more silent than I ought to be. I need to remember there's times I'm supposed to be speaking. I prefer silence, but... Here's the connection in between verses 2 through 7. There is a pattern. 2, 4, 4, 2. You have a grouping of 2 in verse 2, a grouping of 2 in verse 7, and then you have two groups of 4 in the middle. But he weaves all of this together. In other words, there's nothing left out the way that he does this. Order, design, as he talks about God's control. Even the structure is communicating truth to us. I just challenge you to ponder this. And then verse 8, this is how he ends. Watch what he does. Loving, positive. Hating, negative. Making war, negative. And he ends with making peace, positive. What does he do? He gives us another chiastic structure at the end in verse 8. So he begins with the chaotic structure, ends with one, and he weaves everything beautifully together in the middle of it, and he captures everything that can happen in life. Every, every event that could ever happen is under the control of God. Perspectives that Solomon lays for us, the first is this, that he has us look above. To the God who's in control of time, there's orderliness and there's balance. He has us look within because he's going to talk about the fact in verse 11 that he has put eternity within the heart of man. There is a connection that we have. There is a desire. We'll come about next week and talk about the issue of research and science and all of these things that we do. This is a part of man's innateness to come and understand meaningfulness in life. This is what God has planted here. The things that we pursue, but the man pursues the wrong things, right? The other thing that he's going to do for us is he's going to look ahead of man. And he's going to talk about the certainty of death and the reality of judgment. That's verses 16 through 22. Because if you're going to talk about a God is in control of everything, then there's the injustices and the oppression. What do we do with that? Here's an amazing statement that Solomon makes in chapter 3, verse 18, right? He's going to talk in verse 17 about the judgment that's going to come about the righteous and the wicked, right? And there's a time for every matter, for every deed is there. This is by God's design. Verse 18, he says this. Now dwell on this in regards to injustice and the oppression we see in life. Verse 18, I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. This is a powerful statement. That's why I didn't want to rush through this stuff. This is a powerful statement that Solomon is making here. Think about this 
in regards to what happens in the world. So he is going to get into the issue of the reality of death. It is a recurring theme for him that there is an end to all things, and yet that is not the end of everything. The poem's message then comes in verses 9 through 22. Solomon is going to repeat things that he has talked about in the first two chapters. He is going to make this statement or ask this question in verse 9. If you notice with me, what profit is there for the works from which, in which man toils? He asked the same question back in chapter 1, verse 3. He began that in verse 3. But here's what's missing as he asks the question here in verse 9. The statement under the sun. Why? Because now he's looking at it from a different perspective. Now he is not looking at it from under the sun. Now he's taking God into perspective as he talks about this. And as he asks this question, there's new perspective now because there's new evidence. God's in this now. Before he wasn't in the question, so the question came with the attachment under the sun. That's not here now. The other thing that he's going to do for us is he's going to talk about the issue of the divinely given quest for, for meaningfulness. He, asks, he has this statement in chapter 1, verse 13. He talks about this toil that God has laid upon man. He's afflicted him with it. He is going to take a more positive bent in chapter 3, verse 10, and he's going to talk about this pursuit of meaningfulness. We'll come back next week and talk about this. But now he's going to do it from a different viewpoint. So if you want something to chew on for next Sunday. Verse 11, he's going to talk about man's link with eternity, but he's going to remind us that there's a limit to our understanding. If I can put verse 11 this way, the second half, but even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. We know things about what God is doing, but we don't know everything. He's still in control. We know from Acts when the disciples asked in chapter 1, verse 7, right, is now when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus tells them what? There are appointed times and seasons that the Father's fixed by His own authority, but that's not for you. <laughs> That's his business. Your business is make disciples. There are still things that are under God's control that we don't even know about that he is going to do and will do in our lives. In our lives. So nothing just happens to us. Then verses 12 through 15, chapter 3, he's going to bring us reassurance. Man's life can be enjoyable. He's going to carefully remind us and focus on the fact that there is enjoyment of life. It is a gift from God. This is something that he grants to us. And as the New English translation renders it or titles this section, enjoy life in the present, verses 12 through 13, this is really what it is. Enjoy life in the present. There are things that God gives us. Enjoy those things. Thank him for them. Delight in them, but never lose sight of the giver of the gift. And then in verses 16 through 22, it is the judgment of God. And I end with this question, and we'll come back next week and talk about it. How can God be in control when there is so much evil in our world with the wicked prospering in their sin and the righteous suffering in their obedience? How can God be in control when all this stuff is going on? And I suggest ponder verse 18 of chapter 3 as you seek an answer. Dad, would you close in word?